it's me again, Shagulala Salami, and it's the Shagulala Salami Show and Virtual Cafe Podcast. And yes, you can tell, you know, my cold is back again. But on the plus side, I've gone several weeks, um, you know, without um, having a cold. So, you know, it's not it's not too bad. Um, it's just, I don't even know what to say. The cold has just come back again. We've had a really cold spell here in London. Um, and to give you a hint about the period, it's when they said we had the beast from the east, you know, sort of brush over the country. Yeah, we've had a bit of Siberian cold, cold air, you know, come in. So it's pretty funny, you know, like the other time when I said, my, you know, I was having instances that, on season cold, you know, because my bedroom is really cold and uh, the building is really old, so there's no cavity to put in place. So I'm trying to figure out alternative um, things to do. So yes, that's why I'm, I've got a cold again. But, you know, touch wood, this is the first one that I've had in 2018 and hopefully um, it'll not, I won't have anyone, um, another one anytime soon again but yes uh, so to save my voice i'll see who i've got here with me so who have i got here with me today this is robert crown i'm the author of suffering ends when awakening begins hi robert how are you i'm doing fantastic how are you well other than my sore throat i'm all right actually <laughs> that's terrific yeah so tell me about yourself robert <clears throat> well i'm um I live outside the Chicago area in Illinois, United States of America. I'm out in the country here. I've uh, just finished my book after about six years of writing it on and off. I'm married. I have a wife and four children. I also do real estate here. I just have a small little one-man show, sell some homes and uh, take some buyers out. But um, that's really... Nothing really too exciting about myself, except this book I just got finished with. Yeah, so what's your book called? It's called Suffering Ends When Awakening Begins. All right, so what is it about? <clears throat> the book is basically about my life. Uh, everything that I went through in my life, all the adversity I went through, uh, we all know about the struggles in life. I mean, we've all been through them. And basically what I did is I just wrote about all the struggles that I went through and how I wasn't really awakened to that inner voice within me. So I wasn't really paying attention about or being aware of what was going on in my life. So therefore, I had to go through all of this, I call it unnecessary suffering, or you can call it, some people call it the law of attraction which I was a master at, but the only problem was I was doing it in reverse. I was attracting all the negative stuff I didn't want into my life instead of all the positive stuff I, I wanted. So it took, me a, it took me quite a while to finally figure this out. And all along the way, looking back, I mean, you could see clearly as day is that there were signs trying to wake me up, but I just wasn't aware. But when I did finally awaken and start to change my thinking, then my whole life transformed. All right. And did you say it took you six years to write it? It took me six years. Yeah, I had to work through some doubt and, you know, on and off with working and trying to get it right. Uh, it finally came together. I finally just pushed it out over about the last eight months here 
took off from my job and just got it done. So I finally finished it off and um, it's for sale. It's been published uh, November 30th, 2017. Right. Okay. Um, so what was your inspiration for writing it? I mean, was is it um, an autobiography or was it fictionized? How have you written it? Well, it's nonfiction. I, I really like to call it kind of a hybrid because it is a, it is a memoir of sorts, but I don't like the word memoir. I, it's more of an inspirational book. So uh, the reviews that I've been getting on the book, it's inspirational. Uh, people feel encouraged after they, they read the book. Um, it makes them feel better about their own life. Uh, there's there's how I changed my life around by changing my thoughts and focusing on what I was thinking on. So, I mean, it's in, it's in uh, religion, spirituality, it's in new thought, new age, it's in self-help, it's in memoir. So it could be classified in a whole slew of different areas, different genres. So. so what inspired you to write it? When did you think, you know what, I should write a book about my life? Well, I was at the lowest point in my life after all the stuff that I had overcome. Uh, my wife and I, uh, in 2011, we were going through a difficult time in our marriage. And it was based on what happened to me earlier in my life. It was more of a sense of betrayal than anything else. And at that point, I just couldn't take anymore. I finally had given up on my life. You know, I let my hair grow out, I grew a beard, I wasn't working, I didn't really care if I lived or died. Um, I went to, my wife and I went to counseling, and during the counseling, I laid out for the, the counselor, uh, in one hour, I told her, gave her the, the elevator pitch about my life story, and jokingly, I said, I should write a book. You know, and then she told me, she said, in 25 years of counseling, you know, I've counseled dysfunctional families, gang members, addicts, all these different types of people. I never heard of anybody going through as much as you have. So after I said that, it kind of ignited a spark within me, and it really brought me back to life. And at that moment, I felt that that's what I had to do. So I wasn't a writer. I wasn't passionate about writing. But I felt that if I could get my story out, it would give other people faith and hope and courage to overcome the challenges that they face in their own life. Okay, well, your book sounds, you know, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, would you like to read a chapter or two for us? You know, hopefully you can inspire people who listen to the, you know, to my show. Sure, that'd be great. I'll read the first chapter and then I'll read... Uh, uh, I'll read another one after that. Okay, the first chapter is uh, called Lethal Ice Cream. Even now, more than 40 years after the fact, I still have a hard time believing that my mother tried to murder my sisters and me. That event obviously changed my life forever. Initially, it put me on the downward path into the darkest place imaginable. Evil came into my world. Yes, I do believe evil exists, but it was only by passing through the darkness of evil that I was able to find the joy of being awakened in the light. And certainly, I also know love exists. In April of 1973, I was a normal 11-year-old suburban kid. 
On the day it happened, even though it was in the middle of spring and in Chicagoland, it had only recently turned warm, and there were gray, slushy piles of snow on the roadsides. It was in the low 50s, and the dark sky promised rain. There wasn't, the weather wasn't unusual for Chicago area at the time of year, but this day was going to be special. At least that's what my mom said. We gotten up for school like on any other day, but much to my amazement, my mother had said we're gonna see the ice capades at the old International Amphitheater in Chicago. Like any kid, I was over the moon with the thought that I didn't have to go to school. Even when we were sick, mom insisted we go to school. So this was nothing short of amazing. Woohoo! I shouted, she gave us the news. No school today, really, said my younger sister. You want to go see the show, don't you, said mom. We all screamed with excitement and assured her that we did. I'm going to run out and get some gas so we don't have to stop on the way, said mom. Why don't you kids just relax and watch TV till I get back? About an hour later, my mom pulled the car into the garage and we heard the garage door close. I thought that was odd because we'd be leaving soon anyway. We lived in a split level and the garage was on the level above the family room. We could hear her setting paper grocery bags on the counter, and then she came to the head of the stairs and called down to us. Kids, you, you wait down there for a minute. I have a surprise for you. I jumped off the couch and headed for the stairs. What is it? Wait, she said. I said you have to wait. If you come up too soon, you won't get the surprise, you hear? I went back to the couch, and my sisters and I giggled as we speculated about what the surprise could be. Okay, you three. Mom finally called down from the kitchen. Today's going to be a special day. Who wants some ice cream before we leave? We were off the couch and up the stairs in a heartbeat. Mom had three bowls on the counter and was dishing up some ice cream. We squealed with excitement. But when I took a closer look at my bowl, I froze. It was covered with what looked like crushed up white candy. Wow, I said. What's this topping? One piece has an S on it. Mom seemed disturbed somehow and distant, but she continued to prepare the dishes of ice cream. So I thought a little of it. Maybe she just had a lot on her mind. The S means you're special, and it's a special day today. We all thanked her and went back downstairs to watch TV while we devoured the treat. At first, my sister didn't see any of the special bits in their bowls, but then they found the pieces marked with an S. A few minutes later, my mom came down the stairs with a blanket draped over her arm. In one hand, she had a hammer, in the other, a box of nails. What's that stuff for, Mom? I asked. She didn't respond. She started nailing up the blanket across the entryway that led into the family room. That shut out a lot of light, and the room immediately became stuffy. I thought I caught a faint whiff of car exhaust, but I didn't think anything of it. Mom, why are you nailing up the blanket? She turned to me again. Her eyes were empty and almost lifeless. It's a surprise for your daddy when he comes home from work. I frowned. What surprise? Oh, you'll see. I was bewildered at the time. But years later, when I looked back on the surprise she had in store for dad, I realized the depth of her hatred for the man. She went through the door from the family room to the garage, leaving the door open. I figured she must have left it open because we'd be leaving any moment. I hurried to finish my ice cream. 
There was no sign of mom for a while, and I started to wonder why we didn't, we hadn't left yet. If we didn't hurry, we were going to be late for the start of the show. But now I was tired for no apparent reason. Done with our ice cream, we had just watched TV while we waited for mom. My sisters lie on the floor with their pillows, and I stayed on the couch. I began to smell more exhaust fumes, and I thought I saw a faint bluish wisp drifting in from the garage. I think the car is plenty warm now, I yelled toward the garage. My mother didn't respond. Now I began to feel more than tired. I was woozy, sleepy, and sick. The room was becoming foggy from the fumes billowing in from the garage, making it difficult for me to see the TV. My sister seemed oblivious to the exhaust. They were sitting closer to the screen, but they did begin rubbing their sleepy eyes. The carbon monoxide burned my eyes and I had to squint to get them in focus. I could taste the filthy exhaust as it coated the inside of my mouth and my nose. My chest got tight and I began to cough violently. I felt isolated, alone, and I wondered what was happening to me and hoping I wasn't gonna have a full-blown asthma attack. I couldn't imagine why we were down here alone and why our mom wasn't here to help us. On the floor, my sisters were gently rolling from side to side. They weren't saying anything, but each gave an occasional little whine or moan. Then they closed their eyes, and they seemed to be drifting in and out of sleep. It was getting harder and harder for me to breathe, and I quickly realized an asthma attack was coming on. I didn't have my inhaler with me, but I didn't have the strength or alertness to go up and get it. Soon I was choking and coughing. I was gasping for air, but there was no clean air to be found. Then a virgin thought entered my mind. This is what death feels like. I'm going to die. It wasn't some whimsical notion. I knew clearly that my time to die had arrived, and I surrendered to that fact. Not only I couldn't breathe, I couldn't even manage to keep my eyes open. I was weak, my body was limp, and all I wanted to do was lie down and drift away. I felt like my whole body was wrapped in many heavy blankets, but through all those layers, I heard a voice. It shook the room like rolling thunder. Not a pretend voice or some distant spirit voice, it was a real voice. I had no concept of such things at the time, but I know that it was my higher self speaking to me, guiding me. Get up and go for the door. Go for the door, the voice said. It was forceful, but not angry or panicked. It was an encouraging voice, and I just did what it said. My response was automatic. I didn't think or question that I was being told. I was like the voice, it was like the voice flipped a switch in me, and I just did as I was told, like a robot following a command. The encouragement of the voice didn't end the lethargy, but it was enough to get me to my feet. I turned to the garage door and started to move. The door seemed to be a hundred yards away, but one step after another, I made my way toward it. I felt like I was wearing lead shoes and walking up a steep, steep hill through chest-high water. I tried to call out to my sisters, but all I could do was just breathe. Over and over, I gasped, trying to take in huge gulps of air, but the air in the room was dirty, and my efforts to breathe didn't seem to amount to much. 
When I reached out toward the door, my arms felt like concrete. I staggered and almost fell, but I managed to right myself. I knew that if I did go down, I might not get up again. My legs trembled and my knees were about to buckle. My eyes burned and I had to fight the urge to squeeze them shut against the pain. Now I was in a race with my own failing body. If I could get to the door before I collapsed, maybe I'd live through this. And then it seemed like someone or something much greater and more powerful than me began controlling my limbs. I could barely see the garage door through the fumes. I glanced back at my sisters, still motionless on the floor, their limbs in awkward positions. I wanted to go back to try to rouse them and get them to come with me, but I knew I didn't have much strength, much life left in me. If I didn't make it to the door, my sisters would surely be dead. I could easily have settled to the floor with them and closed my eyes, but I knew I never would have opened them again. So I turned and faced the garage door again. I had to command my legs to take each step, but it felt like something other than my own mind and will was driving me. Whatever the great power was, without it, I wouldn't have continued. The trip across the floor to the garage seemed to take an hour, but finally I made it, still on my feet, still conscious, barely. But once inside the garage, I still had to climb four steps to get to the level the car was sitting on, then to the back door. The fumes in the garage were even thicker, a dark, dirty cloud. I could feel the oil, oily exhaust on me like a heavy, filthy blanket. As I faced the steps, I grabbed hold of the wrought iron railing and steadied myself. But I realized to my horror that I didn't have the strength to climb the steps. My whole body was trembling. I would have burst into tears, but I didn't have the strength to do that. I'd come all this way only to know that I could collapse here at the foot of the steps and die. But something was pushing me, whether physically or just emotionally, I can't say as I look back on that moment. With every tiny bit of strength that remained in my body, I lifted my left foot to the first step. I grabbed the railing with my left hand. Then I used my right hand to lift my right thigh and I got my foot to the second step. Now I was right next to the tailpipe of the car, the exhaust pouring onto me through the wrought iron railing like smoke from a raging fire. I was choking and gagging. Two more steps to go. I slid my hand up the railing and pulled myself forward while lifting my leg to the third step. I stretched out with my arm, but the doorknob was out of my reach. Gasping for air and almost overcome by the toxic exhaust, I lifted my leg to the next step. Now I wrap my fingers around the doorknob and use it to pull myself up. My fingers, in fact, my whole body was trembling as I reached for the latch and turned it. I pulled on the door, but the door always stuck. I had to pull with all my strength. For a moment, I was afraid if the door came open suddenly, I might fall backward down the steps I had just climbed. I knew I couldn't make it up them a second time, but I had to get that door open. I felt like I was having a tug of war with the devil. Finally, the door popped open. A wind gust of clean, fresh, cool air hit my face. I stood for a moment on the threshold between life and death, and then I staggered forward into the clean, crisp air. But I realized the horror wasn't over. I was still dreadfully sick and I needed someone to help me save my sisters. I tried to scream, but nothing came out. And it was in the middle of a school day and work day. Even if I could find the strength 
and breathe to scream. I knew no one was going to hear me, let alone help me. We had a six-foot privacy fence in our backyard, and as far as the world was concerned, I was invisible. I wasn't going to make it. I was going to die, and my sisters were going to die if they weren't already dead. Then I felt something within me, some force, energy, or power. The same thing that got me up off the couch and helped me along the way. Even though I could barely hold myself up and was laboring for every breath, something told me to try one last time to call out for help. I steadied myself against the wall of the house and tried to fill my lungs with as much air as I could. I lifted my face to the sky and yelled, help. It still wasn't loud enough to wake a sleeping baby, but it drained me. I was on the edge of blacking out. At that moment, I felt something squeezing both my arms so hard they hurt. At first, I thought it was just a side effect of the carbon monoxide poisoning. Then someone started to shake me so violently, my knees buckled, and I knew I wasn't standing on my own. Someone screamed, Robert, Robert. I looked up at the person, but I was so disoriented, I couldn't make out their face or voice. I finally managed to focus my eyes and surprised to see that the person shaking me was my mother. With the violent shaking and the screaming, my first thought was that she was angry, that her pain had, her plan had failed. I was terrified that she intended to finish me off. But after she got over the fact that her plan had failed, she seemed to snap out of it. She sprang into action. She ran into the home, and I later learned that once inside, she called my father at work and told him there had been a terrible accident, that she had forgotten to turn the car off after parking it, and the house was full of fumes. He told her to open all the windows, and he raced home. I don't remember his reaction when he reached the house, but I'm sure he was freaked out. He called his parents and they came over and my sisters went to the hospital in the ambulance. Today, a mother who tried to murder her children would be put in jail and the father would be a suspect as well. But this was the early 70s. There was no police response, no investigation, no charges filed. And there was no therapies for my sisters and me, not for my dad either. People just weren't as awake back then. Society wasn't as aware. That's the end of chapter one. Chapter nine is Runaway. There's a scene in the movie Risky Business in which Tom Cruise takes his dad's Porsche out for a drive while his parents are away. It was a bad move on his part, but at least he had a license. I did the same thing with no license and no idea how to drive. And in my case, it wasn't a Porsche. It was a 73 Plymouth Valiant. It was March 1976. I had a friend in Schomburg named Dave. He and I used to shoot pool and hang out when I lived with my dad. He came over to my mom's in Palatine one weekend to spend the night. By this time, my mother wasn't home very often, but even when she was home, I wasn't listening to her much. I just did whatever I wanted. Dave and I were only 15, but we decided to take my, car, my mom's car out for a spin that night. I thought we could take it out for a quick drive and bring it back, and she would never know. So we waited for her to go to sleep, and once we were sure she was asleep, we crept into the garage. Since it was directly under her bedroom, we opened the garage door as quietly as possible, cringing at every stepping, at every creak. Then we eased, opened the driver's side door, and I reached in and pulled the key in the ignition and turned it on just enough to unlock the steering wheel and the gear shift lever. There is no way I could have started the car in the garage without waking her. 
We put the car in neutral, left the lights off, and rolled it down the 30-foot driveway into the street. Even the sound of the road grid under the tires made me look over my shoulder to check my mom's window for a light. Finally, we got in, and I fired it up. We drove around the neighborhood laughing and spinning the dial on the radio, picking up music by Bad Company, The Eagles, and Marshall Tucker. When Bachman Turner's overdrives, You Ain't See Nothing Yet came on. I couldn't help but step on the gas a little harder. I was having a blast, but I had no idea what I was doing, and it was a bit unnerving trying to aim the car down the middle of the road. We had ventured out a little farther and farther from my home and eventually taking the car out onto some main roads. We ended up about seven miles from the house on Cuba Road, a road made notorious by a number of haunting stories local kids always told about. It was a cool place to drive during the day because it had very steep hills. It was like riding on a roller coaster. Some of the drops were so steep that it would throw your stomach into your throat. At night, it was spooky, not very well lit and sparsely pop populated. The home sits far back from the narrow road. Some of the tall old oak trees had branches that hung over the road. I decided it would be really cool to get airborne going over these hills. The first time I tried it, we didn't get airborne, but we could feel the car suspension clanking as the car was lifted as far as possible when the wheels were still on the ground. As soon as we left the crest of the hill on the downslope, the car was slapped back down onto the frame and we bounced up and down in our seats, nearly hitting the ceiling. The next time I went a little faster and this time we did get airborne and came down harder. The next hill was the big one. I got it up to almost 55 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone. We hit the top of the hill and went flying. We came down hard on the two right wheels and went into a barrel roll. The sound of the car made was something I'd never heard before. It was a horrendously crunching, screeching, rumbling sound. I thought the car would be ripped apart before it came to a stop. Neither of us had our seatbelts on. When we finally came down to rest, I said to Dave, are you okay? Yeah, he said, how about you? Other than my leg being caught in the steering wheel, I think I'm okay, let's get out of here. We didn't wait for the police and I don't, e I don't even recall looking at the condition of the car. It was too dark to see much anyway. We heard later that a man out walking his dog that night told the police we rolled about 150 feet, half the length of a football field. We walked aimlessly for a while, a bit dazed and sore from the accident. What are we gonna do now, said Dave. Instantly, I knew I couldn't go home, nor did I want to. I don't know about you, ma'am, but I'm taking off. What do you mean, taking off? I'm splitting town. I don't know how my mom's going to react to this, and I'm not going to stick around to find out. She'd probably kill me if I went home, and, and I'm not kidding. I'm going to Florida. We parted then, and that's the last time I saw Dave. I got back out to a main road and started hitching to Florida. I had 20 bucks in my pocket. It was the only place I could think of to go that was far enough away from my mother. I didn't really know the place, but my dad and I had been there before. And I still remembered a little bit about it, and I had fond memories of our time there. That's the end of chapter nine. Thank you. Sorry, my voice. <clears throat> oh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's quite an interesting read. Um, it's definitely, it sounds a little bit like fiction, you know, just sort of listening to you yeah. tell it, but it's quite amazing. So you actually went through all of that. Oh, and more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, you don't really realize how it has an effect on your life. You know, the thing with your mother, because especially in my case, I was a very sick child. I had asthma really bad. So I would have to stay in the, you know, when I was smaller, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, 10, I would have to stay in the house during the summertime because I was allergic to everything outside, grass, trees, mold, ragweed, all that stuff. So yeah. my mother was constantly taking care of me and nurturing me, right? So she was the one that was there for me all the time. So to have my mother, you know, have that to want to kill me, to murder me, and it, it's not like a, a flimsy, you know, I'm just going to, a random thing like I'm going to kill you. It was planned yeah. out. You know, she had planned this out for how long, I don't know. But, you know, so that really devastates you. And all this stuff starts coming out of you as a kid. and you know, it affected me in school. I, I couldn't study in school. I got into fights. You know, I, I ran away from home. I rebelled against authority. You know, even to this day, my wife and I would get, a, we don't, we don't rarely argue. I mean, at all. I mean, we barely have even a heated discussion. We, we don't actually, but you know, if there was a time when we did, I mean, for a split second, you know, when she was serving me dinner, I would think, you know, and it had nothing to do with my wife, but it had to do with what happened to me when I was little. You know, you think, oh, my God, is she going to poison me? You know, it just, <laughs> flash, it just flashes through your mind, you know, because you you think about what had happened to you before. It's like a, it becomes a paradigm. It becomes a, a thought pattern. Yeah, you know, I, I know she won't. But, you know, she but you think about that. And, you know, when I first met her, you know, she wanted to take me out to a concert. I usually didn't go out to places because I had another bad experience when I went to a first concert with a person I went, they OD'd. And so I started getting like really, you know, because the surprise of going somewhere with, with my mom, you know, taking off school. And then, you know, my wife wanted to take me to a concert. Then you start getting all this anxiety, you know, about like what's going to happen and all this. So it was, it was kind of hard. But, um, you know, obviously I, I was able to work through all that, but it really sticks with you, you know. So people that go through struggles in their life, we do stuff and we don't realize why it's happening, you know, but it's happening for a reason. Some of these things make, make an imprint on us. Some of them make a paradigm, you know, which is a, which is a pattern of our behavior. Yeah. And, in, you know, if you've heard anybody says, say like, oh, you know, I always – relationships never work out for me or this always happens to me all the time you know you hear these types of people and these are paradigms this is this is based on uh, the way that you think based on the all the information and everything you took in at a younger age when your conscious mind uh, wasn't able you didn't have any reasoning factors back then so everything just went into your subconscious mind and it, it becomes a program you know, it becomes a pattern. So in order to change this pattern, you have to start changing the way you think. And that's what I finally did, you know, after years, finally figuring it out. You know, I mean, before I wasn't even looking, you know, to figure it out. And all these things just kept happening to me. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm just, I'm, it's very few times. I think this is the second time on the show where I've been made speechless um <laughs> no, well, that's no. a good thing huh <laughs> well yes you know because i always think that you know i would always have a comment about something but then you know when you're then faced with something like this it's kind of like difficult to know what the right thing uh, <clears throat> to say yeah. would be um well one of the things that i am pleased about is that you know you took you took the bulls by the horn so to speak 
and you know you've put it down on pen and paper and hopefully you know someone you know who's going through similar or someone who is you know who can relate sometimes you know we just sort of need company that actually you know what whatever insert adjective has gone on in our lives you know we've not we're not the only ones and if that right. person can go through it or come through it or come out of it then you also can do that right and that's and that's really why I wrote the book I mean that's really the only reason why I wanted to write it is to help other people get through it because you know for me I, right now I'm 56 years old so it took me a long time to be able to to write this book and to think about it and you know all the suffering that I went through I went through it for a long time and a lot of it I caused myself so I thought by writing the book if I could write it and show some of the stuff that had happened to me and when I wasn't paying attention to that inner voice or that thought within me, you know, that it caused me more suffering. So I'm hoping that people won't, when they're ready, you know, if they're uh, awakened that or beginning to wake up, that they'll realize that, you know, they have the power within themselves, you know, to change if they want to change. They have the power to do anything they want. I mean, they... The, 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 what do they say? The kingdom of heaven lies within you, not without you. You know, the power is within you to change. I mean, we're creators of our own reality. Yeah. We are, you know, despite what we hear on the mainstream, you know, news media or TV shows or whatever, it's all nonsense. I mean, we are, we are gods in our own right. We are God. Yeah. You know, so we can create our own life. We can create our own reality how you want to. And I, I just didn't want to you know, have people go through all this unnecessary suffering when they don't really have to. It's just a matter of changing your attitude. Yeah. Okay, so remind us again, what is your book called? It's called Suffering Ends When Awakening Begins. And have you seen the movie The Secret? No. Okay, it's about the law of attraction and Michael Bernard Beckwith, who, who runs the Agape International uh, Spiritual Center in California here in the United States. He endorsed my book. He's Oprah Winfrey's friend. And yeah, um, yeah which was great. I'm, I'm really grateful for him for the endorsement. But yeah, my book is available. I mean, people can go to my website if they want to. Uh, I have, also have a blog. It's, may I say what it is? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, it's uh, crownrobert.com. And you can get the book uh, online. Okay, fabulous. Well, it's got to that time, you know, um, where I've got to kick everybody out of the cafe um, and try and rest my voice for a bit so that hopefully the next time you guys hear me, I won't be sounding as croaky as I am now. So <laughs> I might not recognize you. <laughs> and thank you, Robert, for sharing your story. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And until next time, everybody, um, it's the Shekilola Salami Show. Catch you later. Bye.